Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, and I'm here at the Time Summit in Greenwich, Connecticut. This episode is brought to you by Unramp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand up from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with a perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. This episode is brought to you by Quantstamp. Quantstamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. The technology is being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. My guest today for Unconfirmed is Hugh Leong, the former head of emerging technology at State Street and the current CEO of OmniX. Welcome, Hugh. Good to be here. Thank you, Laura. So when you left State Street, you wrote an article for Coindesk on the four quadrants through which you view the crypto space. What are those? Yeah, so the reason I wrote that article is because when people think of crypto and people talk about blockchain, it's such a new and large field. It's very difficult for us to come together and talk about a specific area without having some sort of a framework. So we had too many people coming in just saying, let's talk about blockchain. We're like, well, which part of blockchain are you talking about? So I basically came up with this four-quadrant model to, to put a framework around that. And the two axes of the framework, one is the concept of crypto as an asset class, as a token, and the other side is blockchain, the technology that underpins uh, crypto. The other axis is between retail individual users and the large institutions. The reason why I divided the institutions and the retail, even though they're all clients, is that in this space, when you talk about investments, um, it's different to think about a large retail company versus a small retail shop. They seem similar. One is for a bigger client, one is for a smaller client. But when you talk about a financial application, what a retail client can do in order to spend their credit card versus what a large institution like a Goldman Sachs, like a State Street, is different because those institutions are regulated entities. So they can't just be treated as a large retail. They are a totally different category. That's why we have GCFEs, that's why we have all these different institutional monikers. So that is an, that's another axis of its own. So if you divide these four, these two axes, then you essentially have four quadrants. So what I'm calling the first quadrant is the crypto for the retail side. And I consider that the Genesis quadrant because this is where Satoshi rolled the white paper and coined Bitcoin. And this is where it started everything. So I'm calling it the Genesis quadrant. And we have another quadrant, which if you look on the access, it is the blockchain space and the retail blockchain space. This is what I think is the true intrinsic long-term value of crypto. Because this is the technology, when you put it out there with the blockchain, you can have decentralized applications. Right. This is potentially, I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next five years or 10 years, but potentially this could 
create a decentralized Uber, a decentralized Twitter, um, decentralized music storage. Uh, so if we keep moving up, quadrant three is the quadrant that I'm calling institutional focus on blockchain. So this is something that started around 2014, 2015, where a lot of the banks got together, created consortiums, and basically said, how can we transform the existing financial system with blockchain? And to me, while this is hugely interesting, this is more of a technology stack, right? This is replacing existing technology with the blockchain technology in the context of financial institutions. So it's not about completely disrupting what's there. It's about making what's there better. Now we come to the fourth quadrant, right? So the fourth quadrant is this concept of crypto for the institutional world. And this is where I'm focusing on as OmniX. And also this is where I think sort of the midterm and long-term value of a new asset class is for the institutional side. And tell me what's going on with OmniX right now. So OmniX was formed six, seven months ago when I left State Street in August. We have raised a institutional round of funding. We are rather large um, in terms of our uh, team. We are actually launching in May of this year. So we have a number of clients that are coding to our APIs. We have a number of clients that are, you know, let's get ready to use our screens. But basically what we're launching here is a front office, mid office, back office system that tries to take the crypto asset class and put it in a way where it's very easily accessible to the institutional investors that are familiar with trading existing asset classes. And so what things can they do on the platform? Yeah. So traditional uh, asset classes essentially are managed and traded uh, through a life cycle, front office, mid office, and back office. That's kind of broadly how people think about it. So front office encompass things like portfolio management, risk management, um, you know, at the start of that investment life cycle. And then it moves to middle office, which has order management, order routing, figuring out where these investments should be directed to, including trading. So how do you route to the different venue? Does this go to the CME? Does this go to a private uh, liquidity venue? Does this go to another exchange? And then the back office is where, when the trade is over, you do your settlement, post-trade compliance, settlement, moving the funds, moving money, in this case, moving the actual crypto tokens. So existing platforms like this are only made for traditional asset classes. Um, Software designed for crypto is generally retail-focused, so it doesn't have the rigor. It has a totally different expectation of the audience, which are individuals, right? If we go to a Coinbase, we go to somewhere to trade crypto, it's very easy for us. We can log in, we do this, we do that. But if you're a large institution deploying tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, you're not going to walk up to a screen, log in your username, password, and start trading, right? So unfortunately today, for a lot of uh, institutional investors, they're using spreadsheets, Google Sheets, um, essentially home-growing connectors and system together to trade an asset class that is in many ways um, pretty hard to manage because it's a bearer asset. So we're basically building the software platform so that people can uh, don't have to think about the technology side of large-scale institutional trading of crypto and easily fit that into what they already do today, which is just trading on asset classes. And does your software connect to both the exchanges in this space as well as the blockchains themselves or only exchanges or... 
Or, or how, yeah, how does that Yeah, so work? a good way to think of it, um, that's a very good question because some people think of us as a blockchain company, right? So our technology is not backed by a blockchain. We're not an ICO company. We don't have our own tokens, right? So we are a, we're a traditional financial network, but that's exactly right. We connect to all the different endpoints out there. So we're not an exchange ourselves. Uh, we're not a market maker ourselves. We are not a custodian and we're not a fund administrator. But what we are is that we are market infrastructure. We are the super highways that get you, the investor, to all the endpoints that you need to normally access. So we do connect to exchanges that provide liquidity. We connect to OTC trading desks that provide liquidity. And we connect to electronic market makers that provide bilateral OTC liquidity as well. And do you ever see a day, I mean, I totally see the business opportunity right now for a company like this, but do you ever see a day when institutions might actually interact with blockchains themselves, or do you think that it will never really get to that level? I think we will get there. Um, but at the same time, um, this is not mutually exclusive, right? A bank, like my old employer, State Street, are doing a lot of work to explore how can the blockchain solve um, problems like syndicated banking? How can blockchain help securities lending? How can blockchain help um, reconciliation problems, right? They can continue to do that. But at the same time, if you're an investment manager, whether you're a hedge fund or a crypto-specific fund or even an asset manager, sovereign fund or a pension fund, why would you not want to hold crypto if you believe it's a new asset class and you believe in the long-term value of this asset class. So we can coexist. People can use our platform to trade, to invest, to manage that investment. And at the same time, they can explore and invest in blockchain and make their own systems more efficient and save costs uh, that way. So we're going to keep talking about the quadrants because I found that really interesting. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, QuantStamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution just won't scale. The team at QuantStamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with the growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, QuantStamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit www.quantstamp.com. I'm speaking with Hugh Leong of OmniX. So to go back to the Quantrans, as you were describing them earlier, you talked about that second one, which was sort of like these blockchain platforms. And then there was the third one, which were the blockchains that were being, using, being used in enterprise in, in existing financial institutions. And we heard Olaf Carlson, we of Polychain Capital, give 
a keynote right now about, I think, kind of more that second quadrant that yep. you were discussing. Exactly. And then in the Q&A, somebody said, oh, well, what do you think of the private blockchains? How are they going to be disruptive? Or what do you think the potential is there? And I just thought it was funny. You know, he said, oh, well, I really don't think that it's going to be very disruptive at all. And I think it's what you were referencing earlier, where essentially you're just making kind of an existing power structure more efficient. Then obviously it's not being disruptive because it's just kind of reinforcing their power. So yeah, d- describe a little bit what you think the difference is between those two quadrants. Right. I think there's a difference in that that third quadrant where the large, particularly financial institutions are using blockchain are not going to be truly disruptive. But that's not to say that it won't be important or that it won't be significant in the future. Um, so I think the difference there is your perspective, right? Olaf being that post-internet Right, the, the post-internet um, group of uh, group of people um, really believe in taking some of that power and giving it to the people. Right, this is how crypto started. Right, but at the same time, the whole reason why I have the quadrant separating retail and financial institutions is that the financial institutions, as much as they want to give that power out, they cannot because they are regulated, and they're and the regulators regulate the large financial institutions because it's important to protect your money. Right? If you, as an individual, want to blow your $50, $500, that's okay. You lost it. You gave it to somebody who you didn't know. But if a large pension fund transferred hundreds of millions and you don't know where that went to, um, that is quite a different story. Right? So a lot of time we think of blockchain and these kind of new decentralized world as mutually exclusive. Right? Who's going to win? Is it the decentralized world or the old traditional world? Um, I think both are going to exist, right? They're going to coexist and they're going to enhance each other. Um, you know, this was this whole private blockchain, public blockchain was touched a little bit during the keynote and the Q and A section, right? Um, I think both are equally important because you look at the internet. The internet, there is the one broad internet that we all exchange emails and news that everything goes on essentially. But at the same time, every company, every institution, big and small, will have a private internet. We at home have our own private internets, so so they all exist, right? Wait, in your home, you have a private internet. Anybody with a modem that's hooked up to a DSL or a cable service, you essentially have your own private network. Oh, I don't right? think of that. So you're a machine. Think about this. What if your what if your files are sitting on your uh, on your um, time capsule or hard drive at your home and everybody else can get access to it. It'll be oh, gone. I see what you're saying. But you do have a gateway. So those systems internally can talk to the external world through the internet, but yet they're restricted and they talk to each other through a private network. So we have countless private networks in the internet world, and there is that one internet that we all connect to. So there's no reason why we can't have that exact same system. We have the one chain or two chains or maybe 10 big chains, who knows, but every company can have their own on-ramp, off-ramp, their internal finance chain, their internal supply chain. And that is actually how the world is working today. If you look at a lot of what Alibaba and some of these people are doing in terms of making supply chain more efficient through a blockchain, it isn't about having the entire world getting on it. It is about their supply chain. What IBM and Hyperledger and R3 is trying to do in terms of um, financial blockchains, that is exactly what it's going to do. Now, exactly what shape it's going to take, is it one chain to rule them all or 10 chains or 20 chains? That remains to be seen. But I think that quadrant two and quadrant three that I speak about, um, they're both going to survive. 
And because you talk a lot with institutional players, I'm curious to know what you're hearing from them these days in terms of what they're thinking about doing uh, with regards to how they're going to enter the crypto space, when, in what way. Yeah, so I think 2018 is really the, the institutionalization of crypto. Um, the reason I left State Street in 2017 is that from 2016 and onward, we started getting a lot of clients of large institutions asking, "How does can, can a custody bank like State Street do custody? How would they trade it in large amounts?" And that didn't exist. So I went out to build this platform. But in the last six months, um, all of our investors are institutional investors. Um, we have a, a number of clients that's in the process of integrating and getting involved. It, it is becoming real now. Are institutions coming in because they truly believe that blockchain is the future? Or are they getting involved because they think there's volatility and they can make money by trading it? It's both. Do they need to be one or the other? Of course not. You know, Are people trading pork bellies and soybeans now because there's some need for that? No, right? They do that because they can profit from the volatility and it helps farmers hedge their trades. So here, same thing, right? You, you are going to have those long-term believers, uh, maybe in the pension space or long, uh, long investment space that they think, you know what? I believe in that quadrant too, right? We are going to have decentralized economy in the future. And I want to hold this now because it's going to grow in the future. And then you're going to have the investment bank that says, you know, interest rate has been really low. I can't make a lot of money trading bonds and equities, even though the last few months we could. But crypto, it's just, it's going to remain volatile for quite some time, right? Because of the nascent state. So there's a lot of reasons why they want to come in. Um, We don't, we support all of those reasons, but I think it's an absolute phenomenon right now where these large institutions are really looking at um, how they can more professionally trade this. And I think the the interest level that we have gotten as a new startup building this institutional framework for investment and trading a crypto is proof that they're coming. What tend to be the concerns that they have about getting in? There's a lot of different concerns. I mean, it's, it's I'm not at all saying that this is smooth sailing going forward, right? And as we talked about on the panel a little bit earlier, there's there's obviously the technology infrastructure, which is what I'm trying to solve. But there is also the custody infrastructure, right? We talked about this quite a bit. You know, again, you and I as individuals having a few thousand, tens of thousand dollar worth of this, um, we can store it however we want to store it. And when you have a pension fund the size of Wellington or, or – big fund like a Wellington or a BlackRock or a sovereign wealth funds with hundreds of millions and trillions, where do they store this kind of stuff? So we have to have a much more robust technology infrastructure as well as um, just financial infrastructure to be able to hold custody and all of that. And then also the regulatory uncertainty is, is obviously going to keep a lot of people uh, in check and make them a little bit nervous. And I think generally speaking, um, Regulators are going to be slightly behind, right? They're not designed to lead. They're designed to protect and follow. And I think what we've seen as a global effort in terms of all the different regulatory agencies uh, in the different countries is actually a good thing. Nobody has come out and said, this is just gone, right? People, I think, living through the Internet um, have become accustomed to, you know, trying to facilitate the advancement of technology. But at the same time, regulators are here to protect uh, infrastructure, particularly financial infrastructure, right? So, but that's already starting to uh, to get some clarity as well. 
For you as an entrepreneur building in this space and on these technologies, what do you think the challenges are in this space or what remains to be built yet? Yes, it's basically everything we just said right now. Um, you know, for us, it is, you know, being that infrastructure and ecosystem provider, we need everybody else to be in. Right. So we need to be able to plug into a lot of different exchanges. We need to plug into a lot of different providers, you know, as the custody and fund accounting and all of these different uh, traditional infrastructures start to accept crypto. We have to plug in all of that and yet make it so that it's easily accessible to um, the traditional investment world. But also, let's not forget, there's a tons of folks coming out like Olaf raising hundreds of million dollars to invest. And their investment process and methodology will be different from the traditional folks. Um, so we have to support a lot of these different paradigms, right? And I won't say the name, but a really large asset manager that we spoke to over a year ago that really made me want to do this. And they said it in a really good way. Um, I said, are you guys actually looking at this? You know, you're a very big fund. And they said, no, we're not trading this now. But he says, let's not forget, the portfolio managers starting work now, they're in their 20s. They, they were born after the internet. Their way of thinking what the world is going to be and what's valuable is going to be different um, from the existing folks. And they want to they wanna get the fund ready in terms of technology to, in order to get to this asset class when that portfolio manager asks for it. So we ourselves have to be prepared too because we come from institutional trading. We know what that world should look like, but at the same time, we have to make sure that our platform is flexible enough to add a whole new way of trading crypto. Great. Well, it's been so fantastic you having on the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.